I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. And this week we ask, are we too pessimistic about the global economy? Kenneth Rogoff, professor of economics at Harvard University, is one of the most influential economists in the post-crisis world and a leading proponent of policies some see as fiscal responsibility and others deride as cheese-pairing austerity. He's counselled Barack Obama, among other world leaders, on their economic outlooks. His view that government debt is a serious risk to growth has attracted attention and no small amount of controversy. But Ken Rogoff's work spans many other areas too. His latest plan for rescuing the global economy is to phase out paper money and send us all cashless. And if we divide the world's leading thinkers into pessimistic Eeyores and upbeat Tiggers, well, Ken, I'd say that you're a bit of a Tigger. Fair description. Well, uh, certainly at the moment, I try to think of myself as balanced. And uh, I don't think uh, the people who think growth will be slow forever are right. Well, let's start with America. Many commentators, including The Economist, have criticised President Trump's economic policy as unimaginative and incoherent. But you've written more optimistically about the economy, even under this quite erratic president. Why? I certainly will not defend Trump as fit for the position or the most competent president we ever had. He does want to succeed, and I think he tends to retreat from some of his worst ideas. I also think policy matters less than you might think in the United States. And I think the underlying economy has a lot of strengths. The U.S. has a lot of dynamism. And I do think, certainly over the next five to 10 years, we will start to see more investment, more innovation. President Trump has been clear about his ambition to put America first in renegotiated trade deals. Are these guaranteed to be good for America's economy? It's really hard to know what he's about there. He's a populist president. I think negotiating trade deals one by one in this complex world with lots of linkages across firms, across countries, is nuts. It's very difficult to do, as unfortunately the UK may soon find out. You've written that Trump is not the fiscal hawk he first appeared to be. What leads you to that conclusion? And how should he approach the budget deficit? I think the whole idea that government policy is all about fiscal stimulus has been way overplayed by the left over the last five to 10 years. It just wants to expand the size of government and use that as a reason. There are a lot of areas where I would like to see the government expanded in the U.S. But there are areas where reform might help. The corporate income tax in the U.S. is a mess. Barack Obama would have changed it if he could have gotten support. I think he would have supported, actually, the policies Trump's putting in place, and they will certainly lead to a greater deficit in the short run, but they'll improve things. As for the cuts on high-income earners, I find that simply inexplicable. We live in a world where clearly taxes need to go up on the wealthier, higher earners, and we need to have bigger transfers on everyone else. And this is going 180 degrees in the opposite direction. It can't last. 
You've opposed the idea of secular stagnation, basically saying that stagnation would appear to be a permanent feature or an embedded feature, at least, of advanced economies. What's the source of your disagreement? I think some of what is viewed as perpetual slow growth was the headwinds from the financial crisis, which often take eight to 10 years to completely clear. It's not unusual. I don't know what direction growth will go over the next 25 to 50 years, but I know we're in a fog at the moment. And just to extrapolate what's going on and assume that will be forever is not a good way of looking at things. I teach at a university, I interact with young scientists, and I have to say, if there's no innovation, nobody's told them about it, and they're very excited. I actually am more worried that the world will evolve too quickly with too much innovation than that we won't have enough. You were at the centre of a big macroeconomic dispute back in, in 2013 when some researchers at the University of Massachusetts challenged your findings that government debt exceeding 90% of GDP would dramatically reduce growth. I think you acknowledged that some data was missing. But do you stand by your conclusion that government debt poses a serious threat to growth? Let's start with the fact that their results were essentially similar to ours. They referred to a short conference proceeding note and not to our published paper later, which gets essentially the same results. We compare it to, say, a cholesterol level. If your cholesterol level is over 200, you have to look at a lot of other risk factors. We don't show growth slowing down dramatically, and we don't say it's causal. We just say when debt is very high, on average, growth is slower. And, of course, we also note that it's different for different countries. Frankly, if you look at the period since that controversy, countries like Italy and Japan, which have had very deeply ingrained debt problems, haven't grown so fast. When the other academics have looked at it, our results have held up pretty well. Our policy advice was certainly not austerity. You can read our articles in the Financial Times and others saying that there needed to be infrastructure spending. I wrote something in 2008 about a trillion-dollar infrastructure plan. The left also cited us. Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, in justifying their policies, cited our work. And we didn't respond to either side. We didn't comment politically. I get the feeling you don't like being seen as someone who is holding up a banner for austerity. The word austerity doesn't appear in our book. The concept doesn't appear in our book. For example, if you don't like government debt, you can raise taxes on the rich and make transfers. We're looking at very long-run patterns, so you can raise money on infrastructure, as we argued. So I think um, there were other people's work that was somewhat attributed to us over this period. I don't want to name names. But for example, we never wrote anything about the size of government, about the level of taxation. It's a very dry, careful academic paper. We found no matter how carefully we stated things, uh, people would misrepresent us. You've taken a very different attack in an interesting direction, actually, one I hadn't expected from you so much in The Curse of Cash, your most recent book, you propose a novel solution to a lot of problems besetting the world economy, phasing out paper money. Why is the money the problem? I favor phasing out large bills, which almost no one uses. $100 bills, 500 euro notes appear in almost no one's wallet, but account for large shares of the global money supply. It's used for tax evasion. It's used to facilitate crime. That's been true for a long time. 
Money has a lot of positive benefits. I don't favor getting rid of it anytime soon. My book advocates having a physical currency forever. But I think if you look at the use of uh, paper currency in legal transactions, it's been steadily on the decline in every country. And yet central banks are printing more and more of it. And there's plenty of data consistent with the idea that a lot of it is tax evasion and a lot of it is crime. What's the single largest denomination you came across writing the book? Singapore had a 10,000 Sing dollar note, which is worth about $7,000. They've gotten rid of that, although they still have a 5,000 Sing note. A more famous note is the 1,000 Swiss franc note, which is about $1,000. The euro is very hard to understand why you need a 500 euro note, much less a 200 euro note. And I think over time, we are likely to see these notes phased out. I think a lot of economists agree with us. I'd like to talk to you a bit more broadly about the mood on American campuses. Free speech has, has been a topic that The Economist has touched on. And it's really the, the balance between sensitivities, particularly perhaps towards minorities, and a sense that free speech is under attack and that the mood on campuses, particularly in the US, is not conducive to open debate and open minds. What's your feeling? One of the questions you have to ask is how do you be careful to be sensitive to minorities and really evolving social culture? But on the other hand, uh, how much do you want to have students unprepared to live in the world out there? That, you know, should they just live in a bubble and then they leave? So we want to set an example for the world, and yet we want to prepare our students for when they go into the world, and how do you strike that balance? And the social culture's changing constantly. The political correctness in American universities has accelerated very sharply over the last five to seven years. I find particularly disconcerting when, you know, people are blocked from speaking, when only one view is allowed to be heard. I find in the British universities I'm visiting Oxford at the moment, there's a little bit better balance in things. It's sort of the same rhetoric, but it's not as intense. But maybe it will go the way of the U.S. But that also sort of reminds me of the sort of tone that leading academics sometimes take, which is, is slightly regrettable, but there's not much that they could do about it. I mean, should people who have your kind of platform, your kind of prominence, be much more outspoken? Let's understand that the students run these things. A lot of the questions of who's invited and what's allowed, the students have an enormous amount of latitude. And so in some sense, they have to work it out among each other. I'm one of the older professors, and this is for the younger generation to decide, and we can have opinions about it, but eventually what the younger generation decides is the direction will go. You can affect what you say yourself, what you do in your classrooms, how you use your pronouns and things like that. I did have an experience once where I looked at a regression and noted that growth tended to be lower in more corrupt countries, and I pointed to one of the points and said, well, that's Russia up there. You know, very corrupt country with low growth. And uh, I had a student from Russia there, and he was looking very hurt. And the whole class seemed upset that I had pointed at that. I don't know if you're a Russian in the United States and you've never been exposed to the fact that a lot of the world thinks Russia's corrupt. Maybe we're wrong. And he argued that. But that's pretty intense political correctness. It was clear the class wanted me to backtrack on that. And I found that an awkward moment since it's pretty strongly ingrained in economic research, Asimoglu and Robinson, that institutions matter. If you have a very corrupt country, it's a problem. That's what Prime Minister Modi is trying to do in India with reducing the role of cash in a little sense what my book is about. 
and, you know, to sort of redefine corruption so that it doesn't exist in Russia and having to backtrack as an academic, you know, I find disconcerting. Now, you're a true product of the Ivy League. You studied at Yale. You've taught at, at both Harvard and Princeton. You're currently visiting professor at Oxford University. Way into a perennial debate, which undergraduate system is better and why? I think they're better for different things and for different people. The system at Oxford, the tutorial system, has much more one-on-one time, which is very expensive to provide, so you lose in a lot of other dimensions. But I think it's very good for teaching uh, students critical thinking, writing, how to debate. On the other hand, if you're trying to teach them how to do C or Java, it's kind of nuts to do things that way. It's more efficient to have a big section with a graduate student professor lecturing, and then the students work with themselves rather than with the professor. The Oxford system clearly has produced a lot of great thinkers and continues to but it's specialized in a very different way. It does have a, a sort of educational economics argument underlying it, which is that in the American system, you can expand capacity for subjects which there may be more current demand, economics, computer sciences, and it's harder to do in systems where you have a plotting of two students per professor. What's your thinking on what the right thing is to do there? Let's put it this way. I think we're going to go to a future where it's more demand-determined. Eventually, digitization is going to hit universities just like it's hit the media, just like it's hit many other aspects of life. One of the ramifications of that is people will choose more. It'll become more, much more consumer-driven. Right now, in some of the British universities, they decide how many students they're going to take in classics and how many in philosophy. I think Stanford at the moment has less than one English major for every English professor and some huge percentage of the class majoring in computer science. I'm sure the admissions department didn't want that. Uh, And we have, you know, some of these trends going on at Harvard. You see them at MIT at all schools. I was going to ask you how you would recommend that people prepared for university or prepared for what kind of university experience they would like. And and then I read a bit more into your biography to discover that you dropped out of high school, which is what we always tell our children not to do. But you did devote your life at that point to chess and became a grandmaster. Did that talent for chess and that immersion in it from an early age make you a better economist? I think there are ways I've been able to draw on chess in my life and by analogies, although I have to say there are ideas I might have arrived at another way. For example, chess disciplines you to ask what the other person's thinking because you're not just playing the position, you're playing the person. Chess certainly steeled my nerves. You have to be very calm because everyone makes mistakes. You're constantly making mistakes. The position shifting, you didn't see something. In economics, it's impossible to have everything perfect, always be right, and you have to be steeled to the fact that you you make mistakes and how do you readjust If you look at your knowledge of economics over such a long period and the areas that you've chosen to to go deepest into, what's the biggest puzzle that you would like to get answered? Well, I'm trying to ask myself that question in shaping my next work of what am I really interested in asking. That's one of the fun things about being a professor. I was able to go off and work on this incredibly quirky topic, which no one works on, about paper currency. And I worked on negative interest rates, which really no one works on or thinks about as a serious topic. There are you know, many questions that fascinate me. I'm very curious what artificial intelligence is going to do. It connects back to being a chess player. Part of the reason I stopped 
was, I was sure computers would be much better than people. Actually, computers are much better than people, but chess is still very healthy. It's actually quite an interesting case study. It hasn't really hurt chess at all. So maybe it'll be like that in other walks of life and creative things where our creativity will remain different than computers present. But that, that's certainly an area that fascinates me. Ken Rogolf, thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week's The Economist Asks. We'll be back again next Thursday. In the meantime, do let us know your thoughts on the global economy and whether you're a Tigger or an Eeyore, an optimist or a pessimist, via Twitter at Economist Radio or on email radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.